Good morning. As Alex said, my name is Josiah, and I'm very excited to be here this morning to preach the word of the Lord. And I just want to take a quick moment and encourage us as we are sitting very likely and just with our family, looking at the TV or your computer or your phone, as Alex said, not to just consume, but if you hear something that the Lord strikes in your heart to affirm that where you're sitting as if you were sitting with everyone here today, don't take lightly for those of you who are parents or spouses, don't take lightly affirming the word of the Lord among just a small group of people. So this morning we will be in Isaiah 36 through 39. And while it is a long passage, and thank you, Alex, for reading that so well, I want to encourage you to go back and read the narrative as well by yourself. As many of you know, I work for a company that supplies other businesses with safety equipment, And as many of you know, safety equipment right now is in a high demand these days because of low-risk jobs now having become high-risk jobs due to COVID-19. We are seeing companies that are desperate for safety equipment and cleaning supplies across the world right now because they don't want their employees to get sick and have to shut down. Our customers are calling multiple times a day asking for updates because they have direction from leadership to buy in these times. It's very similar to what we see during a hurricane, right? For every grocery store that gets water, they can't get enough water to stock the shelves. Because the moment that water is on the shelf, it's gone. Because we don't want to run out of water. Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever wanted to see something happen so bad that it changes the way you act? It causes you to do things that you didn't know you could or would do. You may have yourself or you can think of someone who has been so desperate to be liked that they change the way they act around people. Or you're so desperate for the new iPhone that you camp outside for days on end. Or you're so desperate for people not to have iPhones that you criticize them nonstop. Or maybe you've known an addict that is so desperate to get clean that they will do whatever it takes because they are at their wit's end. They have no hope. Or maybe just recently, as I've, I just heard, you spent $30 on nine rolls of toilet paper because you are fresh out. Desperation rises out of hopelessness. And when desperation rises, we search for solutions. Chapter 36 through 39 here in Isaiah serve as a real life illustration of what Isaiah has been preaching to the nation of Judah. God's people should not place their hope in the ability of other nations. And this piece of narrative that is just dropped into Isaiah ends what is often referred to by commentators as the first book of Isaiah. These four chapters in the previous 39, 35 specifically told God's people not to trust in themselves or other nations and that judgment and destruction was coming. In these chapters, Isaiah will share the story of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. And just to do a quick recap of the Old Testament in order to set context, if you can remember from previous sermons, Ahaz was a terrible, wicked king. He did not follow the word of the Lord and made alliances with neighboring countries for support. King Hezekiah, however, was not like his father. 
According to most commentators, Hezekiah was considered one of the last good kings in the line of David. The other good king, King Josiah. Just on another note, I know you're laughing at home. I can hear you from here. Which, if you remember that line of David, looking back at 2 Samuel 7, it's the covenantal line where the Messiah will come from. And although David and all of his grandchildren are in the covenant, since David and Solomon, the kingly line has mostly been wicked with some good kings. And you can read more about Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 through 20 or 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. But here are some of the highlights of his, king, king, um, his reign as king that make him considered to be a good king. He, Hezekiah purifies the temple of the Lord that was previously desecrated, and he reinstituted the Passover holiday. One little anecdote on the Passover, at this point in history, God's nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, where King Hezekiah was, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which had already been conquered. So at this moment, when Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover, he actually invited, yes, the kingdom of Judah where he was reigning and the kingdom of Israel because he understood that these were all God's people who needed to worship in the way that God had called them to. In this narrative specifically, though, there are three acts. And in each act, Hezekiah is faced with a dilemma and that he has an attitude, an action, and an outcome. We see a king who, despite his family history, does not give in to the pressures of surrounding nations. He has what we could call a heroic faith, a courageous faith shown against his enemies. He pleads with God again in desperation regarding an illness after pleading with God regarding an attack from Assyria. Again, Hezekiah turns to the Lord time and time again. With that said, Hezekiah also becomes a confusing character at the end of his life. After being blessed so much by God, Hezekiah enters into prosperity. And we will see at the end of the story, Hezekiah will sin by taking pride in the accomplishments that God has given him. Hezekiah's life shows us that our desperate moments serve as an immediate reminder and an opportunity to press into God for heroic faith. And those moments of desperation should serve to humble us in our prosperity. So whether in crisis or prosperity, we are a desperate people who cannot help ourselves, but there is a God who saves desperate people. If you would, let's take a moment to pray and then let's dive into this word. Heavenly Father God, we come to you in all this strangeness, Lord, this unique nature of preaching to an empty room, but knowing that people are watching, Lord. And Father, we believe that the power of church and gathering is not in what we bring to the table, Lord, but it's in gathering around your word and your word being preached, Lord. So while the seven of us are here in this room, and while many more are watching, Father, I pray that your word would go forth. Lord, that you would encourage. God, that you would convict. God, and that you would turn our eyes to you. And that we would fall more and more in love with you as we come to you as a desperate people. Amen. 
So in this first act, this first scene of the story of Hezekiah, we see Hezekiah's bold faith and desperation. In the first two scenarios, both this one and the next, he shows bold heroic faith as he faces uncertainty and he knows he has no control and he is reminded of his inability to save himself. His first crisis comes from the hand of Assyria. Hezekiah's father had previously made a truce with Assyria and Judah was supposed to pay tribute to them. Well, Hezekiah said, we aren't supposed to do that, so we aren't going to do that anymore. This is repentance. Hezekiah is leading the nation of Judah in the opposite direction of what they were doing. They were walking in sin previously, and God has convicted them, and they have now turned away from that. With that said, the consequences of Judah's previous sin do not just simply go away. There now comes a time for confrontation. And in this first scene, we see these two trusts that if you were with us previously, Tim talked about several weeks ago. The first trust is found in Assyria, the king Sennacherib. He's pitting himself against the second trust being the God of Judah. This isn't a plea for a mutual truce. Not that that would have even been a better option as God had told them not to make truces with other kingdoms, but it is clearly an ultimatum. Assyria is coming to repay Judah for not paying up. The delegate refers to Hezekiah, not as a king, but just simply Hezekiah as an equal. And what is the strategy of, a, of Assyria here? We see in chapter 36, it's to inflict fear on the people. First, look at verse 11, 36 verse 11. They, we see that they are speaking in the common language and not the language of delegates and the royal, royal family so that all the people can hear the potential destruction that is coming their way. Second, they claim Judah's strategy of defense is just merely words in verse five. In other words, Assyria is saying that their faith is just self-speak. Assyria is saying that when push comes to shove or when you actually go to test your faith, you'll find out that it's just empty words. Third, in verse 15 all the way down to 20, they make the claim that their one true God, the God of Judah, is no different than the other gods that the, of the other gods of the nations that Assyria had previously conquered. If those gods were helpless, what makes Judah's God any different? In the ancient Near East, it was believed that when a nation defeated another nation, they also defeated that nation's God. You see, the enemy and the world want to attack us very similar to, similarly today. The enemy would want us to believe that fear would be prevalent and in the forefront of our minds. We have so much unknown and so much out of our control. He wants us to be consumed with what could happen and even what will happen so that we would not live our life for God. Secondly, the enemy would tell us that our faith is just trivial. It's something that we tell ourselves to cope with the struggles of the, the world we live in. In other words, our faith has no teeth. It has no power, and it's only something we hold on to because we are too weak to face the bleak reality of this world. And finally, the world will tell us that God, our Christianity, is no different than other gods and religions of the world and through history. So I ask you today, this morning, where you are in your room, when faced with desperation in your life, who are you going to believe? What are you going to believe?
when your marriage is crumbling before your eyes, when your children are walking away from the faith, when you lose your job, when you get sick, who are you going to turn to? Is it time to find a new way of thinking, a new way of living? Or is it time to bring yourself vulnerably, vulnerably before the Lord and be exposed in the true weak state that you and I are in? What did Hezekiah do? The impending destruction drives Hezekiah to desperation. He knows that he is helpless against the armies of Assyria. There is nothing he can do to stop them. If Assyria chooses to, they will wipe out Judah from the face of the earth. So Hezekiah turns to God in desperation. In 37, verse 4, excuse me, in 37, we see Hezekiah tear his clothes. He turns to the Lord. He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. He immediately enters into mourning, 37 verse 1. He knows that he is completely helpless against the Assyrians. He is all in. While Hezekiah had turned against the agreements of the Assyrians, he also attempted to build his own borders without the help of God. So in one sense, yes, good job, Hezekiah. You are not seeking to get help from the Assyrians, but you still cannot believe you are capable of doing this yourself. Hezekiah compares his desperation to a woman who goes into labor but cannot successfully birth the child in verse 3 of chapter 37. With my wife expecting her third child here in less than a month, which is just insane, this illustration jumped out to me. See, it's amazing how God has designed women's bodies to give birth, but there's still so much out of our control. See, once labor actually starts, there's no going back. And if during labor, the baby is in the wrong position or otherwise medically compromised, the mother will need an outside force, such as a doctor performing a C-section or other procedure to intervene in order to bring forth a live, healthy baby. Here in Isaiah, Hezekiah is saying Judah is in labor, but this labor is going to kill them outside of God, the great physician's intervention. See, John Oswald commenting on this says it well, this kind of admission of helplessness is frequently a necessity before divine help can be received. So long as we believe that we only need some assistance, we are still treating ourselves as lords of the situation. And that latent pride cuts us off from all that God would give us. You see, we see this desperation in the New Testament as well with Jesus. For your later reference in Luke 8 verses 40 through 56, we see a story concerning two characters who are so desperate for Jesus. The first being Jairus, whose daughter is on her deathbed. And it says that Jairus fell at Jesus' feet, imploring him for the life of his daughter. And what does Jesus do? He goes. Secondly, an elderly woman who has a, or excuse me, a woman with a blood condition who has spent, it says, all of her money on the best doctors and she cannot be healed. So what does she do? She is in no condition to leave her house. She gets up, she leaves her house. She goes to Jesus because she has nowhere else to turn to. She has tried and tried again with nothing. 
and she touches his garment. She touches his robe and Jesus heals her. That is one, both a sign of desperation and secondly, a sign of the love and compassion for our Savior, from our Savior. There is nothing Hezekiah can do in his own power and he knows that. There was nothing that Jairus could do. There was nothing that this woman could do to heal herself. Remember, for Judah, they were in this position because of their sinfulness. And now they are coming up to the Lord, crying out for deliverance. You and I, we're no different. You see, we too are helpless, first and foremost, to fix our sinfulness. When we come to God, we do not come saying, hey God, I have about 30% or if you think you're really good, you're like, I got 70% of righteousness here. Can you help me out with the rest so that I can get into heaven? No. We come to the Lord broken and bankrupt with nothing to offer other than help me. So you see, we come with nothing. Zechariah chapter three Verses three through five paint a beautiful picture of this, saying, now Joshua, the priest, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments from rags to beautiful garments because of what God has given us. Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13 both remind us that we were once dead in our sins. Dead, no hope. Judah could not get help from another country and they could not prepare themselves enough for what was coming. We cannot make ourselves holy enough for judgment day. We do not come to the Lord for assistance. We come to him for complete and utter helpless need. Hezekiah came mourning. He tells us in chapter 37, verse four, Isaiah tells us in 37, verse four, that Hezekiah said, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rab Shekah, who is the delegate coming and speaking on behalf of the king, whom is whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. You see, we can believe based on the previous reforms that Hezekiah had previously instituted that his main concern was his own survival and the survival of Judah. Again, he made a lot of good changes that we should look at and be like, that was good, Hezekiah. But he was a man. And he was short-sighted. We need to remember that our good leaders, both current and historical, are not saviors and they never will be. It is idolatry for us to look to anyone or anything for perfection. Here we see that Hezekiah knows that for Assyria to attack God's people, it's not just an attack on God's people or him as a king, but it's an attack on God himself. You see, if Hezekiah was still more concerned for his own temporal namesake, then he could just simply accept that Sennacherib was a bigger and better king with a larger army, and he could become a governor, give in, and just do whatever he could to just survive. 
but he knows that he's king of Judah for one reason and one reason only, to bring God glory. See, Ray Ortland on this passage says that the impulse of self-preservation, it kills courage. But when your personal fate is no longer what you're living for, when your own ideal life scenario of a perfect health and a perfect marriage, perfect children and a perfect job and a perfect church and perfect control, when that's no longer what you're clinging to and demanding of, when all that you want is the glory of God to be put on display through your existence, that's when God fills you with overwhelming courage, overcoming courage. See, if Hezekiah were to step back, at this, from a worldly ancient Near East perspective, he would probably just come to the conclusion that he should shut up and pay up. Why stir the pot when everything is going okay? See, in 36, 19, Assyria reminds Judah of all the nations that, he had, that they had previously crushed. Does he really want to be like them? But rather than playing diplomat, he courageously places his faith in God. He will not try and work his own way through this scenario. He will trust in God and God provides. While we ourselves do not live in an age of theocracy where we need to fend off foreign nations, God has called us, he has called you and me to have heroic faith in this day and age. In your life, what are you seeking to preserve? What are you seeking to keep? When you see the markets plummet, when you see the graph showing the potential risk from COVID-19, or when you live your life in the midst of your craziness and other crises that go on. What are you trying to preserve? What are you trying to cling to? Is it your own life? Is it your family unit? Is it your daily routine, your pleasure, your money, the chance at a vacation, your 401k, your retirement? Are you trying to preserve a better world? Think back to a couple years ago when we were in Ecclesiastes. Chasing all this is like trying to grasp vapor. It's hevel. We can't keep it. While some of those are good things, they are not the goal of the believer. Our lives, our good deeds, our pleasure, all of our work, they are all for the namesake of God and his glory. See, Hezekiah in 37, or we see this conclusion in 37, 36 to 38. Hezekiah stands up to Assyria, not for his own namesake, not to be remembered in the Hebrew history books of lore, but for the name of God. And God handles Assyria. We almost feel like the two armies should duke it out. A big clash of powers where God empowers Judah in a miraculous way. And so Judah says, God gave us victory, but you know, we did it. But that's not what happens here. It's almost like a footnote. The enemy becomes a footnote. In 36 to 38, as Alex read, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp. Judah did nothing but trust God and Judah had victory. The second scene we see comes from chapter 38 and it's Hezekiah's sickness. Again, Hezekiah turns to the Lord and pleads for healing in verse two. And I'd like to note that in both of these cases, Hezekiah doesn't just simply 
toss up a prayer to God. Hezekiah stops what he is doing and he has complete focus on the father. In the first scene, it says that he lays this out before the Lord. He turns and lays it out. In the second, he turns and faces a wall. He doesn't turn to someone else for comfort. He turns to the father. But in both of those, he turns, he moves, he positions himself. You see, it's an amazing gift that we can pray without ceasing. We can pray in our cars while we drive. We can pray while we do yard work, while we wrestle with our kids to put their shoes on. We can pray at our desks while we work. We can pray while we walk. We can pray all the time. It's amazing. But God calls us to a more intimate and deliberate form of prayer. And I want to encourage you and exhort you if you are not setting aside time for deliberate prayer, don't be surprised if God feels far. It's italicized in my notes. He feels far. He's near. He's calling you. Remember, even the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, would sneak away by himself for, to pray. And I don't think we consciously believe this, but when we flippantly go to God in prayer in the in-between, which is a good thing to do, to go to God in the in-between, but we don't go to him with deliberate times, we're practicing a prayer life different from the one man who is closer to God than anyone else. In verses 10 through 20 of chapter 38, we read what Hezekiah actually prays to the Lord. And again, we see he has a good motive in his desire to be saved. He wants to continue to dwell with God in, chapters, in verses 10 through 11. He, and he understands that the value of his life is being in the presence of God. But this time, Hezekiah does not just have faith that God will heal him. You see, at the end of this chapter, in verse 21, he asks for a sign. God had given him his word. He had given him a promise from Isaiah. But that wasn't enough. Is the word of God enough for you? Is it enough for me? Do we look to symbols and signs and miracles to make God and his word more reliable? In scripture, a sign is a gracious gift that comes from the Father, but they are given because of a lack of faith. See, the plagues were signs in Exodus, but they were bad. Gideon goes through the fleece sign three times because he didn't trust God. Thomas wanted to touch Jesus' hands inside. And while Jesus comforts him and brings him in, he says, trust me. Don't just look for a sign. In Matthew 12, 38 through 39, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for even asking for a sign and then predicts his death and resurrection. Though not perfect, in both of these stories, 
Hezekiah shows courageous faith. He does not back down because he turns to God. He doesn't trust in other nations and he doesn't trust in himself either. And as great and as faithful as a king that Hezekiah was, compared especially to the kings throughout this line, neither one of them proves to be the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. See, often in Scripture, we look back and we call these different characters types, saying that they foreshadow, they they show the coming Messiah. But here with Hezekiah, he's not a type. But instead, he's a reminder that even great leaders, they're not our Savior. They are not just perfect. They are not just imperfect. They're also incomplete. Finally, in chapter 39, after Hezekiah has had a life of turning to God, we see Hezekiah's pride and his prosperity. To set the scene, an envoy from Babylon, a bunch of princes, it says in Second Chronicles, come because they have heard of the miracle that God has done in healing Hezekiah and defeating Assyria. The king Hezekiah responds by inviting them in and showing the envoy everything that he has done. Hezekiah is showing off his accomplishments and his accolades like a football program shows a top recruit their football facility and previous awards saying, hey, look how great we are. You should be here. See, he's no longer in a state of desperation and he has become drunk on his prosperity. Hezekiah took sinful pride in the accomplishments that the Lord had given him over the years. And he had become better off than his father and previous kings. He had restored Judah. And now it's time to show it off. He had forgotten his previous state of desperation. We see this further explained in 2 Chronicles 32-31, some commentary, and it says, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him, being Hezekiah, to himself in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. At the end of Hezekiah's life, we see that he was not a perfect king and that God's people are left wanting and hoping for the perfect king, the Messiah, to come. When we look at Hezekiah's life, we shouldn't try to be like him and we shouldn't think less of him but we should realize that we are in many ways like him. You see, we are so blessed to be able to do good for the Lord in this lifetime, but our sanctification is incomplete. You and I both need to be renewed and to be reminded of our need for a savior every day, every moment. You and I are desperate people in need of our Jesus. And we should own that because Jesus accepts us not because we're good enough. He accepts us because we run to him as bankrupt sinners. Hebrews 2, 1 reminds us of this warning saying, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. It being the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've said this before here and I'll say it again if you think and believe that you can simply drift through life, you will drift away from true life. 
Ray Ortland says this, let's be realistic. We are more evil than we know. We are spring loaded to fall away from God. It is a sin to fall out of love with God. It is a sin of the greatest magnitude and it's not, it isn't hard to do. But secondly, let's be realistic about him as well. Christ loves empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused sinners. He restores souls. He's ready to restore your soul. Do you know you're desperate? Hezekiah had forgotten how desperate he was without God. And the reality is that you and I are in need. We all are. Our needs surface in a variety of ways. We're first and foremost in need of being made perfect. We know that our hearts are inclined to do evil. But we're also in need, you might be sitting here today realizing I can't be a good father. I can't be a good mother. I can't be a good employee. I can't hang on to my family. I can't, I'm going to lose my job. I don't know how I'm going to support my family. I can't, I can't in realizing our state of desperation. And in this life, we have so many opportunities to just cope with that. We watch, we binge Netflix, we scroll Facebook, Instagram, you name it. We, we drink, we eat, we vacation. We do what we can to realize that what we have, we are not good enough. If we take a moment and we step back and we look at the world, one thing every worldview should be able to agree on is that something is broken and there's definitely something wrong with us. And do we know that we are desperate? You and I, right? In this world of prosperity, do you and I know that we are desperate? I saw from Paul Tripp earlier this week, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I'm going to say it anyways. COVID-19 and moments like this do not show us, bring us into desperation. They reveal our desperation. You see, our goal in life is not to accomplish as much as we can, experience as much as we can, have as much fun as possible, have as many friends or memories as possible, or even do as much good as we can. All of those are good gifts that come from the Father. But they should not help us cope with the reality we live in. They should not help us cope with our need. Those things reveal our heart's idolatry. We turn to those. We were not created to preserve our lives. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you see, this is the contradiction of Isaiah, Hezekiah. Excuse me. This is the contradiction of Hezekiah and this is the contradiction of all of our lives. Hezekiah did so many good things in his reign and the best thing he ever did was turn to the Lord in desperation. That's the highlight of Hezekiah's life. It's not showing Babylon his accomplishments. It's not purifying the temple on his own. It's not even restoring Passover. The highlight of Hezekiah's life is turning to the Lord in desperation. As believers, speaking to the believers who are watching today, you've put your faith in Christ. When conflict rises, when crisis arises in your life, whether what we're seeing out in the world today with COVID and the markets, or when your marriage is collapsing, when your 
children no longer follow Jesus, when your children are sick, when you're sick, when you lose your job, whatever the case may be, even in the simplest, when you're working and you hit crisis in work, where do you turn to? When your children are yelling because you can't contain a toddler, who do you turn to? How do you respond to even that happening? Do you mope because your life is hard? Or do you realize that in that desperation, Jesus is giving that to you to say, come to me. Charles Spurgeon, as you've probably heard, has said this so well. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. What do you do in crisis? Do you turn to a friend? Do you turn to TV? Do you turn to drink, sex, pornography? Do you turn to entertainment? Do you turn to hoping and thinking about the one day you'll go on vacation? Do you turn to surrounding yourself? Do you turn to just doing more good? Do you turn to more tasks just to keep the world quiet around you? God is inviting us to run back to him in our desperation. He gives us these scenarios not to tease us, but to say, come to me. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What are you desperate for today? If you're watching and you're not a believer and you are full of anxiety, I want to invite you so much to, for the first time, turn to Jesus. He wants to take this for you. He wants to hold you. He's not mad wanting you to just stay away. He's calling you. He died on the cross for your sins to be with us for his glory. If you're listening today and you're feeling the crisis, whether from COVID-19, the economy, or from a variety of other struggles, I want to encourage you with a quote I read. I'm sorry I lost the, who actually said this. I'll try to find it and share that. See, what we know is that each of us is traveling on a runaway train that is hurtling towards a bridgeless divide. We can't stop it. We can barely hope to contain it. And this enemy is more terminal than a virus or a pandemic, an economic crisis, or an all-out collapse. The last enemy is death. For all the talk these days of flattening the curve If we're honest with ourselves, what we're really concerned with isn't a spike. It's an unavoidable flatline. We know that death is near. In fact, when we, when the swelling curve of COVID-19 finally ebbs to normalcy, we'll still have a greater epidemic to deal with on our planet. The death rate will still be 100% which means the most important question surrounding death is not when, but if, if we'll be ready. Hezekiah knew that he could not escape death. We too cannot escape death. We cannot escape crisis on our own, but God, We are given a solid rock to run to for shelter. Confess your desperation to God. Turn to him. He will sustain you. He will care for you. 
and you will find all, not some, all of your delight in him. Father, thank you for your word. It's amazing how months ago, the schedule in the midst of COVID-19 that we would have a passage on desperation. God, we are first and foremost desperate people in our sin and in need of a savior. God, but you also call us to bring our anxieties, our cares, whether as large as what's going on around us or as small and minor as trouble at work or trouble with our family or just trouble with the way we feel. God, I just take right now, Lord, I feel impressed to, you may be sitting in your room right now realizing, God, I can't control the way I feel towards another person. I can't control the way I feel towards this situation. I, I believe right now that God is just calling you to turn to him with that. Bring that. You, you might be believing that your emotions, your feelings are too small to bring to God. But God is telling us to bring our feelings, our surroundings, our circumstances to him because he cares for you. Remember, we are a desperate people, God. We are a desperate people in need of a savior. When this settles, if this settles, when this settles, we don't know, God. You do. But what our future holds, God, we also know because our future is in you. And you have told us you will never leave us nor forsake us. So we turn to you in desperation.